Thanks for tuning in to Accented. This episode is not scripted, and it's for English learners who want to listen to real conversations. Each week, I interview a new guest who has a distinct English accent. On today's episode, you'll hear from Eva, who is a structural engineer. She currently lives in Ecuador, although she is originally from Belgium. Hello, and thanks for tuning into Accented. On today's episode, you'll be hearing from Eva, who has a very cool life story. She has studied in many parts of the world. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, she is from Belgium. So let me give you a little bit of a rundown about Belgium. It is quite a tiny country that has borders with France, Germany, and Holland. The native language of Belgium is Flemish, and Eva explains that that is her first language, although she can speak a little bit of French and German. Eva is a professor in structural engineering at a university in Ecuador, which is located in South America. So she speaks a lot about her PhD. So a PhD is one of the highest certifications that you can get at a university. So she is a doctor in her field. Now, I do mention field in the interview. Field means your job. So what type of job you do. So I work in the field of education and I am a teacher. So her field is engineering and she primarily works in structural engineering. Eva helps her students to write thesis papers. So a thesis paper is something that you have to write for your university degree. It's mainly for students studying a PhD. So a thesis is an academic document that you hand in and you would have a question or something that you're answering and you would use academic evidence to support what you believe. So it's your main idea. Eva uses the term hands-on. So Hands-on means that basically you're using your hands pretty much. You're not just writing things down. So many, many years ago in high school, we did a lot of listening, writing, and we actually didn't do a lot of experiments. Whereas now things are starting to change. We're not getting students to write down and just listen constantly. We're getting them to create And that's what hands-on means, is getting people to create something um, instead of just copying. So it's maybe making something with your hands or not even with your hands, just creating something. Eva also mentions that she received a scholarship. Now, a scholarship is when a school decides to give you either a discount on the school fees or it's free 
to come to the school. It depends usually on your academic scoring. So if you're given a scholarship, that means that you are doing really well in your field of study. It's now time to get on with the interview. Good morning. Today I am speaking with Eva and she is a professor of structural engineering. She's originally from Belgium and she's currently living in Ecuador. Welcome, Eva. Thank you so much for having me, Kimberly. So tell us a bit about yourself. You're originally from Belgium and I guess in Belgium you speak multiple languages. So tell us what language you speak and your upbringing in Belgium, please. Sure. So I'm from the north of Belgium, the part where we speak Flemish, which is a uh, type of Dutch, of the Dutch language. And going to school in Belgium, of course, means we learn the other languages of the country, which are French and German. Now, my French and German are not as good as they used to be, but I can still understand most of it. Excellent. And so... Uh, from a young age, you kn- knew that you wanted to get into engineering? Uh, it came gradually. Um, I liked sciences and math during my um, secondary school years. And then I wanted to try to go do the entrance exam for engineering. So Belgium used to have a quite um, rigorous math exam to select those who can start engineering school. And so then, well, I thought I can give it a try. And if it, if I pass, then I go study engineering. And if not, I'll, I'll, I'll do something else. So that's how I, uh, I, I passed the exam and then I started studying engineering. And you said to me that you lived in Holland. So did you study there as well? Yes. So I finished engineering school in Belgium with my master's in civil engineering. And then I got a scholarship to go study a second master's in the United States. And after that, I moved to the Netherlands to do my PhD. So how many women are in your field? Not many. Um, it is, especially since I focus on concrete and bridges, it is not... Um, It's a very male-dominated field, but we see more and more. I see now that um, I, as now that I'm a professor, I see more women in my class than I used to see around me when I was an engineering student. I'm more of a creative mind. I know that. I studied music Mm -hmm. when I left high school. I really had no interest in science until a few years ago. And it's interesting because now I'm a high school teacher and I see the science curriculum and I think, wow, if it was as interesting as this when I was at high school, maybe I would have pursued it a bit more. Yeah, certainly there is a way that we can use to get to more students by either looking at the broader impact of what science does, as well as presenting the material in, in, in more hands-on ways, as well as not just, you know, the dry chemical formulas on, on the blackboard. And I, I do think that that is some, a, a change that we've seen in the past years as well um, in, in schools, as well as in universities, that we, we managed to 
hopefully reach out to more people by presenting the material in in different ways. So you've got a PhD and you're currently in Ecuador. What took you to Ecuador? My husband is from here. So I, um, I met him when I was doing my second master's in the United States. And then uh, he stayed there to finish his PhD and, and, and work for a few years in the United States while I was doing my uh, PhD in the Netherlands. And then when I was about to graduate, we were looking for a place where both of us would be able to find jobs. And we explored, we explored both Europe, United States, and going to Ecuador. And that's the, the place where both of us found our positions. So were you speaking Spanish before you met your husband? No, I actually didn't speak Spanish when I arrived to Ecuador. I, I learned it here. Wow. How long have you been in Ecuador now? It's now almost eight years. So you just had to jump into Spanish and are you working in Spanish for your job? I so most the university of course is a Spanish language environment, but the university where I teach has the particularity that all students have to take at least one course in English. So they, they take a number of courses of English itself to get to a certain level. They also take a, a course in composition and rhetoric. And then they have to take one technical or uh, elective course in that is taught in the English language. And since I'm a foreigner in the department, I teach my class in English. Why is it so important that engineers learn English? I know my husband being a French speaker, he had to have a very high level of English to become an engineer. Why is that? Most of it, I would say, is because of the of English being the language in which most of the research findings are communicated, as well as most of the textbooks, and especially the most up-to-date ones, tend to be provided in the English language. Interesting. And what are you working on in Ecuador at the moment? Is there a lot of infrastructure happening? So most of my research I still do with the university where I got my PhD and I still have a, a part-time position there. Most of my work here in Ecuador is teaching as well as some smaller research projects that I can do um, that don't require that much laboratory facilities um, and we do see that in the past decades, there's been more development of roads and bridges, etc., in the country. So it is, it's been developing more. And is it a common thing for bridges? Because it's interesting, my husband was saying in Australia, they generally do tunnels and they're not doing a lot of bridges. In Sydney, there are so many tunnels and it's more of an aesthetic sort of thing that they don't want to see bridges everywhere. Mm -hmm. I, I think the particularity of Ecuador is that at least the region where I live is in the highlands and in, in the mountain region. So there's a lot of valleys and gorges to cross that you really need to span with a bridge. If you would do a tunnel, it would, uh, it would make the road very difficult to access the actual tunnel. It's interesting, depending on where you are, what um, the preferences are. What about in the United mm -hmm. States? Are there a lot of bridges? Are they still looking to build bridges there? Um, I think with the 
the new re release budget for infrastructure, there will be a push towards more uh, development of, of bridges, but also trying to find better solutions for bridges. And that could be either finding ways to keep in service older bridges, as well as finding ways to build bridges and especially if we talk about concrete bridges that have less of a carbon footprint associated with them, because one of the components of concrete is cement and cement has a very high uh, level of embodied carbon. So finding ways to get mixes of concrete that have less or no cement in them could be a potential avenue for having a much lower carbon footprint associated with building bridges in concrete. Interesting. Now, you also have a podcast, and that is mm-hmm. for students who are studying engineering. Is that correct? Uh, mostly for PhD students. At, we try to cover all different levels. And what do you discuss in your podcast? We talk mostly about um the process of doing a PhD, so the different stages. We've done an, a number of um, of episodes on the literature review. We've done a number of episodes on writing and writing habits. And we try to as well alternate our podcasts and our discussions between my co-host and I with interviews. And we've been interviewing other PhD students, uh, professors, We've interviewed a PhD coach to get the, the wide range of people that are involved with PhD level education. And how important is grammar when you're writing a PhD? Oh, I I think as, let me rephrase that. Um, writing is one of the most important parts of the PhD because you uh, the final product will be a PhD thesis and anything then is a scholarly publication needs to be written in grammatically correct English, provided that you'd be um, publishing your results in English language, which is for the vast majority of uh, cases, the situation. So as non-native speakers, we often have a little bit of a, a, we're a little bit behind uh, others there because we need to put our time and attention to getting up to speed with the language and at the same time learn how to write uh, technical um, documents. To be honest, as a native English speaker, it is difficult for for myself to understand academic papers. It's Mm -hmm. like learning relearning how to respond and and what type of language do you use because even when I'm teaching my students how to use academic language it needs to be taught separately to common English because it is it's quite difficult and it's I really find you have to write a different way so I even find native speakers find academic language challenging. Mm-hmm. Did you struggle with your PhD? I think all PhD students go through a point where um, where it's difficult, not just the, the writing, but the research itself, that there is a, and, and it can come at different points during the process. It can be at the beginning as you're trying to define your research question. 
It can be in the, the middle, which is really a muddy territory where you are running experiments and writing out your, about your, your experiments. And at the same time, you're already uh, perhaps working on a paper and thinking already about starting to write your thesis. So there's a lot going on there in the middle. And ultimately, towards the end, as you have the time pressure to finish on time and as well the you know, the doubt whether it's going to be good enough or um, whether it's written in the right way. So for me, there, there's different uh, steps during the process where I had my doubts and where I was wondering if it would be good enough, if it would be enough to, uh, to finish up the PhD and, and get the degree. So I think there's uh, that, that's a story that's common for many. Excellent. Now tell me, since you... Uh, specialize in bridges. What are your favorite bridges around the world? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think one of my favorite bridges around the world is the, um, there is a, I think it's a pedestrian bridge that goes to the, the Tentacle Castle, um, which has a tiny gap. And um, so the, ca- the castle, if I recall well, is on an island or on a peninsula. And the idea is that the bridge has a really tiny gap in the middle to to keep um, to to keep that distance to the castle. So um, I, I don't recall the, the story very well, but um, when I read that, I, I thought it was such a, a great idea to, to come up with a concept of a bridge. Are there any bridges that you've worked on that uh, you've been super excited about? Most of the bridges that I work on are existing bridges, and my field of specialty is really the um, short-span reinforced concrete slab bridges. So they are not very visually appealing. But the reason why I'm interested in them is, first of all, their behavior, the way they carry load, is interesting to study. And secondly, there are so many of them that... um, better understanding the way they behave and the way they carry load, we can make decisions that, or come up with recommendations that could potentially affect a large number of bridges that could keep a a large subset of these bridges still in service, for example. Well, thank you so much, Eva, for coming on the show and explaining your life and traveling all over the world with uh, your job. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. No problems. Bye-bye. Bye. Eva uses the term carbon footprint. Now, I've spoken about this in previous episodes. A carbon footprint is how much gas emissions are caused by an individual, an event, or even an organization. So, Basically, to try and save the planet, we need to be conscious of our carbon footprint. So are we going to drive the car or are we going to ride a bike? Are we going to buy something in plastic or are we going to um, try and buy something that's not in plastic? It's important for organisations to consider whatever they build if it's going to add to the carbon emissions which are destroying the planet. 
Another great term she used was muddy territory. So that's a phrase that people generally use. So if something is in muddy territory, that means just basically mud. And as you know, if there's a lot of mud somewhere, it's very difficult to be able to see through mud. So if it's muddy territory, it means that it's very difficult to find an answer because there are so many different things that could affect that answer. Thanks for listening to another episode of Accented. I'm your host, Kimberly Law. Accented is released on the 15th and 30th of each month. If you'd like to find out more about me, please head to kimslawofenglish.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts, so don't forget to leave a review of the podcast or even a star rating. Speak to you soon.